It's good to see everyone this morning. It is always good to be seen, and I am just delighted uh, as we think about the creation a little bit of the sunshine. It was nice yesterday, and it's beautiful uh, today. So if you have your Bibles with you today, we'll be in Psalm 139. I'm doing a four-part sermon series on um, this psalm, Psalm 139. I've entitled it Terrifying Delight. Now I hope that you'll, it'll be clear um, shortly why I have called it this. Um, but essentially as we look into this word, um, it's easy for us to to go, like, as Matt mentioned earlier, to go to one side or the other, right? So either we're terrified or we're delighted. And it's, you know, that balance, walking that tightrope and finding it out. And I think the, the psalm actually does that for us. And so we'll get into this. Uh, before I read it, though, I just want us to think about something. So today in our culture, people are oftentimes, like, using the phone and talking with each other less and less, right? And they're engaged more and more in social media, right? Things like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all these other apps. And so what I think we see in our culture that there are less and less deep, meaningful, intimate relationships that we have as a culture, as a whole. And then so the question we might ask is, do people even want these anymore? Do we people even want these relationships? Well, I think deep down the answer is yes, they actually do. The reality is that the human heart wants to experience the, this deep, intimate relationship with another person, right? We want to know, we want to be known, and we still want to be loved. Because oftentimes we can be known, right? And then they find out who we really are, and then you're like, will they really love me? So there is a problem. We wonder sometimes if if that person really knew who I am, would they still love me? Would, if they knew me fully, would they still love me? And so, what if someone knew us like that? That deeply, that intensely. All of our faults, all, of our diff- all the things we are underneath. And they knew us And what if they knew the very thoughts that we were thinking? And what if they knew the kind of thoughts that we would think even before we thought them? What if they knew everything we ever did and everything we ever thought before we did them? And what if they still loved us anyway? Wouldn't that both be terrifying and delightful? To be known completely and still to be loved. Today, what we're going to see is that God knows us fully, and yet Jesus still died for us so that we could be with him. And so, um, I would like to read Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. And this is to the choir master. It was a psalm of David that he wrote Uh, to be played and to be sung. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. 
even before word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God is forever. Amen. Well, let me go ahead and ask the Lord to bless the word here. Father, as we come to your word, we oftentimes are slow to pick it up in our own minds, and our own hearts, because oftentimes we have things racing through our minds. All the things that have happened to us this last week, all the things we have going on today, would you still our hearts? And would you allow us to be able to see the wonder and the beauty that you are? So we pray that you would be with us this morning. Let your word fill us. And would you illuminate this word by your Holy Spirit? And we just ask that you would be pleased to show us yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as far as the background to this psalm is concerned, from the superscription, obviously you see that it was written by David, pretty straightforward. Now, many believe, actually, that this was written by David at a time in his life when there were people who accused him of idolatry of worshiping false gods. And this was a prayer he, that many say that he was asking God to search him and search the depth of his being to show, to see that this wasn't true. And so, but quite frankly, we actually just don't know under what circumstance it was written. So we have to sort of say, okay, this is a, a general psalm uh, for us to understand. Now, this psalm has a four-part structure. The first part, verses 1 to 6, which you're looking at today, is God's intimate, omniscient knowledge of his people. Now, omniscience is a big word. It means that all-knowing. He knows everything. Second, God's omnipresent presence with his people. So this, that word omnipresence means he's everywhere present, all at once. Third, God as creator and yet still our companion in verses 13 to 18. And then fourth, we align ourselves with God's heart. That's the structure of this psalm, and that's 19 to 24. And so today I want us to look at verses 1 to 6. And what we're going to see in these verses is that our God, Yahweh, knows all our thoughts comprehensively. So all everything that you think, he knows them completely and comprehensively. Second, he knows all of our activities, everything we do, everything we're going to do. Third, he knows all our words. And then lastly, in it all, yet knowing all that, he still loves us and protects us. That's what we're going to look at. So David begins here, if you look at Psalm 139, he says, O Lord. Now, sometimes you read that and just pass by it. This is the covenant name of God. This is the name that the Hebrews understood as Yahweh. It is the eternal God who always does what he says, the I am, the beginning and the end, the ever-present one. So, if you think about that, having started off with that, it is only in the fact that this God is always, everywhere present, all-knowing, and all-powerful, that the rest of this psalm can actually be sung, or we can read it. 
The fact that he is the one who always was, always is, and always will be. That's the way that you can understand the things that it says in here. And so that's why he starts off with, oh, Lord. And this can only happen because of who he is. And to God, everything is the, I like to think of as the eternal present. You know, we have a past, and so we think of what happened. We have a future, and we think about what might happen. And we have the present, which we're aware of, right? The things that are around us that are going on. But God is one who, to him, everything is always present. The past is always before him. The future is always before him. The present is always before him. And this is how, because of who he is. And so, because of that, we see first that he knows all of our thoughts comprehensively. So David shows us in verse 1 that God has explored or searched his heart and known everything about him. Oh Lord, you have searched at me and known me. The idea of this word search is really examined, maybe you could put it that way. It's the idea of actually questioning somebody to find out their basic convictions. But it also carries the idea of an exhaustive search. So, in other words, God has completely and thoroughly known David and explored David until he has found out who David is at the very core of his being. God has searched David so thoroughly, so completely, that God knows what David is really thinking, what David really believes. And you know what? This is true of you and me as well. When we pray to God, the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Is the real us meeting the real God? Or is it or we distance from that. Think of an x-ray machine, okay? Think of an x-ray machine for a moment. And think of an x-ray machine that would x-ray your soul. God looks at us. He sees what we really are underneath. There are no masks. There's no posturing. Or think of the master detective who won't stop until every single clue is discovered, until everything is completely known. God really knows us at that deep level, at the most intimate level that we long for. He knows all of us like this, whether we want it or not. This is why I say it's terrifying. I, I don't have to go back very far, even this morning, to know that my thoughts aren't right. It doesn't take long, does it? Second, we see that Yahweh knows all of our activities. Now, David continues praying in verses 2 and 3. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. So, he knows us in our private and in our public life, right? So when I sit, when I stand, 
You search out my path when I'm lying down. You know, generally, that's more of a private thing, right? You're by yourself. You're in your bedroom. But when you sit and when you stand up, when you're going around, you're out there. That's your public life. So your public life, your private life, it's all there to God, before God. He sees it all. Even when David is not praying, God knows or discerns his thoughts. So think about this. He is all-knowing, and he knows the smallest details, even your and my thoughts, which include your desires that are hidden, your joys, your longings, your values, your hates, your loves. What does that produce in you? When you think about the last week, and everything that you hated and that you loved. And every time you thought about somebody, when you're driving down the road in the car and somebody cut you off or they're going too slow, what came out of your mind? What was in your mind? Maybe it didn't come out of your mouth. Or maybe it didn't come out in physical actions. What is that? What, how does that make us feel when we think about that? A little bit of terror, maybe? Oh. So this knowledge really... Um, means that God thinks about or even considers your thoughts and my thoughts. Think about that for a moment. Your thoughts that we have, you know, we think all the time, right? Everything goes through it. And God is examining our thoughts. Why are you thinking that? What's it about? Where is it tending? What's it going to? And so... This means that God cares not just about your external actions, right? Think of, think of the Ten Commandments. You know, I would hope that nobody has physically committed adultery or nobody in here has actually murdered somebody. But Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, he said, you've committed adultery in your heart when you've lusted after another. You've murdered in your heart when you have hatred in your heart towards another. Jesus basically took, that, took it and said, listen, it's not about just what you do on the outside. It's about who you are on the inside. That's the issue. He regards our thought life, and it matters to him what we think. So even when we're not praying... God is discerning our thoughts and determining who the real us is. So, though at times God seems far off, he isn't. He's not. He knows our very thoughts as if he is inside of us. He is a God who is transcendent, which means he's above all. But he's a God who's also imminent, which means he's with us. He's near us. And there's a big problem in theology and in the world as they think about God because many people will say, well, yeah, God's up there. He's like a clockmaker who's just wound things up. But what they don't think and they don't believe is that God is with us. He is here. He sees. He knows. He is high above us for he knows all. He sees all and directs us, directs all. Yet he is so close to us that we cannot escape his presence wherever we go. Does this sound like Big Brother? Right? Like, who's watching you? And you've got the little camera. 
I don't know, there, you know there's, there's, you've probably seen a movie here and there about someone whose life is under a microscope and everybody's watching them and they, they can't get away from it or whatever you think of those type of things. Or maybe if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, the Eye of Sauron from the Lord of Rings that searches. Is this terrifying? Or is it delightful? Which is it? How would God, knowing all our thoughts, even from far off, change the way we pray? How would it change the way that we think? And by the way, the way that we think changes the way that we act, right? And the way that we talk to others. Because we often say, well, you don't gossip or slander or do these other things, but what's going on in your head? Is it in there? Right? And so this can be pretty terrifying to us. If God really knew what we were thinking about, the thoughts even before we had them, what would we do differently? So third, we see that Yahweh knows all our words. Verses three continue. It says, and he's acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. This is the reality that God knows when we go and when we stop. He knows everything that we do and everything we are going to do before we even do it. He's so acquainted with all of our ways that he knows what we are going to say before we even utter a single word. And it makes sense. If he knows our thoughts, of course, he's going to know that too. It isn't that though that he simply knows or remembers what we said. He knows the words we are going to say while it's being formed in our minds. His knowledge of us is comprehensive. And it's prior to, before it happens, his knowledge is that deep. And our God knows us this much. When we consider who the real us is then, it is terrifying, isn't it? If God knows me that much, Shouldn't he just simply, like, take care of me and knock me out, get rid of me? With all the thoughts and all the evil that goes on in my own heart and my own life. Shouldn't he push us away and say, I don't want to do anything with that guy? Why would he want to deal with us as a half-hearted creature that we are? You know, we love God, we believe in him, but then we have these moments where we're, like, not so really good in our belief, right? Right? Like, we believe it's true, but we sort of don't at the same time. And we have this struggle, and God sees that and knows those thoughts. And so, if the psalm ended here, without anything further, we should just be terrified and find a rock to crawl under. Okay? But, but, we would, because we would be undone, we would be judged, we would be condemned, but the psalm doesn't stop here. Listen. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. We see that even though all of these things are true about God, he still protects us. He still loves us. 
even though he knows us like this. David's understanding is that God encircles us. It's like in an army. It's like a siege where they surround the city and nobody can get out. That's the language in the original Hebrew that's being used. He's sieging them, around them, like a battle. Except the thing is, he's not sieging them to destroy them. He's sieging them to protect them. He surrounds us on every side. He's behind us. He's in front of us. And this war language is protection and defense. When the king of the universe, when the almighty God uses war language to talk about him defending you, man, that's like a whole nother world, isn't it? But it gets better. It says he puts his hand on us, upon us. And I think this is another war term. You know, he puts his mighty hand. His, his, his eternal hand to destroy his enemies. And he says he puts it on us, but it's not to destroy, is it? It is to take care of us. It is to protect us. It is to guide us. It is to lead us, not to destroy us. God is with you and me for our good. And so the psalmist stops and his mind just breaks down right now. Two thoughts. First, that God knows him so intimately, so thoroughly, that nothing that he thinks, speaks, or does is hidden from God. And second, that God surrounds him on every side, that God is with him, and he is for him. And so God knows David and knows you and I at our worst times and at our best times. And so the logical conclusion would be, of course, if we're weighed in the balance, that we would be found wanting and be judged. But the other side of it that God surrounds us is that he protects us and cares for us. And so the logical conclusion is that God loves us. So you have two things, right? God could destroy us because of all, how evil we are, but yet God protects us and loves us. So knowing that these two things are true is mind-blowing. And so David basically says, I don't get it. It's too big for me. It's too high for me. I can't even figure it out. And so how is it, and this is what I think David is wrestling with it, how is it that a perfect and a holy God who's a consuming fire that it says in the book of Hebrews can know us as thoroughly as he does and simply just not destroy us? How is it that we can still be loved when we are known at this deep and intimate level with all the things that we have done and all the things that we've left undone? How is it that that can be? And I think it takes us to the very first, one of the very first stories in the Bible, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had rebelled against God. They were naked. They were ashamed. They ran away from God. They hid from him while he did what? He sought them out. They knew that judgment was coming, and so they hid. But God, in his grace and mercy, provided a covering for them from animal skins. And then God promised that one day he would send a redeemer, born of a woman, to rescue them from their sin. This fact, that we are known and loved, is so life-altering that it changes everything about the way that you live. This knowledge of God's love, while we are so imperfect and sinful, is just so wonderful for us to grasp. Why? 
God loved us while we were yet in rebellion to him, just like Adam and Eve. God loved them and sought them out. God loved you and me when we were in our rebellion and sought them out. And he did that by himself coming down to earth in Jesus Christ. Who does this kind of thing? Who takes a rebel and says, I'll die for them? This kind of love is so beyond our grasp that we need God's revelation to grasp us. And I want to read what Paul is praying in Ephesians 3, 17 to 19. He's praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Do you hear the echo of Psalm 139? Knowledge is too high, I can't comprehend it. But you know what Paul does? Paul doesn't just stop there and say, well, I just can't comprehend it. Paul says, Father, would you fill us such that we would be able to comprehend with all the saints the immensity of God's love for us so that we would be filled with the fullness of the knowledge of God, the fullness of God. I mean, this is, this is like you've got something that's too amazing for you, so what do you do? Do you just walk away from it and say, well, I guess I can't understand it? No, Paul says, no, we pray that we would understand it so it would basically change everything about us. And so understanding who we were and who we still are is the important key, I think, to worshiping and delighting in God. Who are you? Who am I? If we never wrestle with the sin, the evil that we've done, and we never wrestle with the darkness that's in our heart at the who we are level, right? Because you understand that, right? There's like things that are external, you just do things externally. But it's not the external stuff that's even, I mean, it can be an issue and they're bad things, but it's really what's behind it. Because Jesus says that out of the heart, the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And so what happens is out of who we are come what we do. And so we have to really get at the who we are level. Because if we don't understand the who we are, we'll never understand the incredible richness of the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ. If we put our sin off in evil and we say, well, those are just simply immoral actions. I need to try harder or better. Or we look at it and just say, well, it's just the external behavior, not a big deal. Then we never see that the problem isn't what we do. The problem is who we are. When we see that we are the problem, I am the problem, right? What I do is because I, of me. It's not because somebody else made me do it. I mean, you all know that, the phrase, the devil made me do it. I mean, nobody actually believes that, right? Unless you're the person who doesn't want to believe that you were the one who actually did it, and then you might believe it, right? So we can see that if we are the problem, that the, God's rich mercy and grace is completely undeserved and is completely unmerited. In fact, we are saved not because of us, but despite us. If it were up to us, we would just hold our hands up to God and say, no thanks, not today, not ever, I'm good. And many do that. But Paul says that basically who we are, 
who we were is dead in trespasses and sins, and we were without hope and God in the world. And then in Ephesians 2, 4-7, Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace of you, you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in, heavenly, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So what's he saying there? Not only have we been raised from the dead and made alive together with Christ by the grace of God, but we have been seated with Christ in heavenly places. And after we die, we will be shown the immeasurable riches of his grace and of his kindness in Christ Jesus. So here's the point. The eternal, all-knowing, all-seeing, ever-present God saw us and knows us. Saw me and knows me. And he came down to earth still, knowing who I was, to die for me. Why? This is the message of the the whole Bible. That God created a world perfect. That we broke it. And we didn't want anything to do with him. But he pursued us when all we wanted was to be far away. And he came and died so that we would be known by him. So when people talk to you about how bad you know, Christianity is, and it's just this terrible thing where, you know, it's just a bunch of rules and a bunch of this and that. They've missed the entire thing. It's about a God who loves us and pursued us in our misery, in our shame. And so Jesus Christ this eternal God, ever-present God, all-seeing God, saw us, knows us, and still came down to earth, taking on flesh, humbled himself, and endured the pain of the cross. But worse than just the pain of the cross, he bore the eternal wrath of God for our sake. And then he was died, and he he buried, he was buried, and he did it all for us. And Jesus Christ took the wrath that we deserve because of the who we are. Even though the who he was was absolutely perfect, no problems at all. He humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross so that those things that he sees in us, right? This is it. This is is the key, right? This is the connection key. The things that he sees in us are paid for by him. What I did this morning or yesterday that wasn't right was paid for by him. He bore the wrath of God so that you and I could be hemmed in on every side. He bore that wrath so that he would siege us, around us, and protect us. He, Jesus Christ, left himself unprotected so that we would be protected. He took the anger and wrath, the hand of God of war, upon himself and didn't defend himself so that you and I would be defended. This is the gospel. 
This is the hope that we have. Jesus' life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension secured for us the presence of Christ in your and in my heart. The Holy Spirit lives in us and makes Jesus present in us by the Holy Spirit. The work of Christ is the very hand of God laid upon us which pulls us into him and names us as children of God. You know, those of you who have children, you'll do anything to protect your kids, won't you? Why do you think Jesus called out when he cried and he prayed, he said, Abba, Father. Why do you think that when he was teaching his disciples to pray, that he didn't just say, God who art in heaven? Because when you think of just God as a creator, you think of immensity, you know, his judgment, all that perhaps. But when you say, our Father, suddenly now, it's a completely different world. It's someone who knows you and someone who loves you, someone who will protect you at all costs. And so we are loved and protected by our God, the eternal, all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing God. So I want to take some moment to apply this. So when we look deeply into the real us, don't we see things that we want to hide? Don't we? I mean, there are things in me that I don't, the way I think, you know, the way I act, whatever, and I'm just like, oh, why did I do that again? Don't we see the kind of half-heartedness that we have towards God? It's like we can come here on Sunday morning, be all excited and sing songs and pray and do all this, and then Monday morning hits, and then our coworker does something dumb, and then we just get angry and we yell at them. Or if we're home with our kids and our kids do something dumb, we just yell at them, and we just, we're half-hearted. And we'll, we can say, well, we love God and we love others, but then we live it out in a, this way that doesn't even look like what we said on Sunday. Right? I'm, I'm not the only one, am I? I hope not. Um, well, I mean, I hope you're, but, well, the reality, I'm not. Just be, let's just be honest with ourselves. Don't we have weak affections toward God, right? Like, sometimes we're really excited about God, and other times we're like, ah, I'd rather have a taco. Right? So, don't we see the emptiness in us as well? Right? Like, have you ever noticed when you kind of get away, d- distance from God, life kind of starts to become a little... Meh. Meh. Nothing's there. It's empty, meaningless. The problem is at the core of who I am. Right? And so we rely on our strength. We rely on our power like Adam and Eve did. And we try to sow fig leaves, fig leaves together by doing good, by doing righteous, by you know trying to help others, by doing all these things that we should do. But we try to do that to make God like us. To cover the guilt, to cover the shame. We know we don't live up to God's standards. And so then we try to earn our way. I'll just work harder. Yeah, I'll serve at church. Great, you should. But not to earn God's favor. We gauge our value and our worth based upon what others think of us. Don't we? Like do something at work and then somebody says something and it just sends you in a tailspin the rest of the week. 
and you're like, oh, I'm so terrible, or whatever the case may be. We gauge ourselves by how good we think we're doing. We gauge ourselves by the good works that we've done. And so here's the, here's the point of it all. We actually need to repent of who we are that would do that. See, we need to fully embrace the pardon that we have in and through Christ. We need to lean into our adoption as children. We need God to show us how deeply he knows us and yet how deeply he still loves us. You see, we actually need God to to show us, to reveal to us that he sees all this. He sees this hot mess, right? And yet he still loves me. He sees you, and He still loves you because of His Son, Jesus Christ. We need to remember that Christ came to earth to pay for the who that we are so that we could live in the power of Christ to be the new us in Christ. That's why Paul says, I was dead, and now I'm alive in Christ Jesus When we sin and fail, we need to run toward God instead of running away from Him. As He lovingly calls out and as as He asks us, where are you? Where did you go? Where did you go? We must remember that He sees what we really are like underneath and He still loves us. That's why Christ died. This is why. It's terrifying delight. I want to close with Jesus' own words found in John chapter 10. Because who better to tell you about this than Jesus himself? John chapter 10, verses 14 to 16. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Father, as we look at your word, and as we look at ourselves, We are terrified because of the who we are is such a mess. But when we look to Jesus Christ and see what you've done so that we might have life in you, we are delighted. Would you help us to live in the tension of terrifying delight, to know that you search us and that you know us? And that you still love us, not because of what we've done, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is and what he has done. Would you help us to live in light of that, we pray. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.